Hi, this is Larkin Seipel, and you are listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how you doing? Hey, Ben. I'm doing pretty well. Seems like we were here only yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) We were, in fact. And then there were technical problems. That's right. You know, technical problems can befall the best of us. And uh, not being in front of this setup here for the last few weeks and then coming back to a dead USB hub threw us all for a loop. But but here we are, 24 hours later, uh, rocking and rolling. All right. So, Ben, who's on the show today? This is an outrageously exciting show. Not that they all aren't exciting, but like it's not every day that you get to talk to the DP of everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, yes. Tell everyone who that is. Larkin Seipel. And uh, he is a modern surrealist. I don't care who knows it. Uh, He just does such amazing work. His work with the Daniels, including Swiss Army Man and everything, everywhere, all at once is awesome. And he was just nominated for an Emmy. You know, actually, we're going to screen everything everywhere all at once here on Wednesday in in the screening room here uh, for employees at Hot Rod Cameras. We're gonna, there's only going to be a couple of us, but we're going to get together and we're all going to watch it again. It's such a good movie. Uh, yeah, it, it is indeed. And congratulations to Larkin on his Emmy nod. I think he's got a good shot, too. He's, he's and, really talented. And for someone as talented as he is, quite personable. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get into the nitty gritty of the interview, uh, what's our close focus today? Our close focus, and uh, maybe a lot of people in the entertainment business are talking about this, is the axing of Batgirl, which WB announced. And I think it has something to do with Discovery Network's purchasing or merging with Warner Brothers, but like trying to run it more as a lean machine that Discovery Networks is rather than this, you know, IP spewing monstrosity that WB is. But they have already made the movie directed by Bilal Fala. I hope I'm pronouncing that So name this correctly. is the movie, not the television series. So the movie Cor- is canceled. Correct. And the movie is, you know, not exactly a uh, low budget affair. Well, it's not that it's not a low budget affair, but it's like, you know, an amazing cast. It had uh, J.K. Simmons and mm. Brendan Fraser and, and all these great people in it, you know, and it's directed by Ms. Marvel filmmakers, uh, God, I hope I get their names right. Adil El Arbi and Bilal Fala. I hope I hope I pronounced your names right. Ms. Marvel is quite an amazing show. Uh, it really is. R- really well put together. And it's not that they backed out of making the movie at the last minute. They made the movie and then decided not to release it on any platform. What? Not to release it on any platform. Even freaking Catwoman got a theatrical release. <laughs> Catwoman got theatrical and, and a Razzie. <laughs> yeah. But, you know. and, and, and also, I, I have to say, the Ezra Miller starring The Flash is going to get a, a release. And Ezra Miller is, uh, let's just say, outrageously problematic at the moment. Like, I, I'm a little shocked that they would get behind that movie. And I don't know what the budget was, but I'm sure it's in the neighborhood. But taking a $90 million bath, like, you know, you wonder, do they know something we don't? 
Or is this just an idiotic move? And, oh, uh, Michael Keaton reprises his role as Batman in this. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, which he also uh, does in The Flash. So, uh, you know, if, if, if we all want to hold our nose and watch The Flash so that we can see Michael Keaton as Batman... I didn't um, know that. I might have to try to watch it then, because Michael Keaton's my Batman, obviously. Uh, yeah, I mean, Michael Keaton's just wonderful. I'm, I'm excited to see him return to that He's role. also my Birdman, though, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, look, I, I don't know how profoundly I would have been moved to see Batgirl. It's not a franchise that uh, un- I followed. very profoundly moved, <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> but... That being said, uh, it's just kind of an insane thing for a major studio to do. And I have to say also, you know, there are the two main comic books companies. There's DC and Marvel. And the Marvel movies run by Kevin Feige have been a pretty well-oiled machine. And some of the complaints of some of the movies that they spend more time setting up future movies than they do being themselves. But like... It's such a tightly controlled universe that, you know, I mean, yeah, there are going to be minor inconsistencies across whatever 30 something movies. But for the most part, they're great at creating this like intricate latticework. DC, on the other hand, at any given moment, uh, we might have three Jokers and uh, actually nine Batman, (laughs) three Bats man. That's the actual plural. Oh, okay, Um, good. Yeah, yeah. It's like attorneys general. It, it, it's not like octopi. It's not no. like cacti. It's okay. No, no, so. it's Batman. That's the, that's the plural of, of, of Batman. Okay, got it. And there seems to be, you know, like you look at the Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie versus the Snyder Justice League movie versus, you know, with Jared Leto versus, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Morbius. Uh, versus the Joker who is in The Batman. I forget sure. the actor who, who plays that guy. But in The Batman, there's a different Joker in that movie. And also within the span of a year or so, you also have Robert Pattinson and Ben Affleck and Michael Keaton all playing Batman. I mean, like uh, sort of like the comic books themselves. Like I feel like a lot of times you'll have, you know, a regular run of Batman comic books and then you'll have a wackadoodle uh a uh, graphic Knight. novel or something. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you've yeah. got The Dark Knight Returns or Ar- Arkham Asylum. I'm probably showing that I grew up in the 80s when I'm referencing those kinds of, of graphic novels. But I feel like uh, Warner Brothers has kind of done a very similar thing with all their franchise. So I feel like what that allows, quite frankly, is that Batgirl could be kind of in that universe and inconsistent with that universe. And it would be okay with us. And also... If uh, fans of the Snyderverse or the Batman or whatever, like, don't dig it. If you go, oh, this Batgirl does not sit in the Robert Pattinson Batman movie. You just let it underperform and move on with your life or let it go out and, you know, knock it out of the park and succeed and be awesome. But instead, I feel like it ends up getting Discovery Networks and Warner Brothers a bunch of honestly terrible press. Like, I don't Mm. I don't think it helps them to have a, a $90 million write-off at all. Yeah, I don't know what transpired, but I have to imagine it was fairly severe for that to be their course of action. Well, and all of their comments are like, we don't want to release a movie that we don't think is good. And so they're like slagging the movie itself. But, wow, they could, they, there's um, so many other ways that they could have handled that. There's so many different ways that could have deftly for sure. you know, touched upon, not quite ready for release, or planning on, or it could have just been pushed like nine times, like the way some movies keep getting pushed. Go, go but, into reshoots, reshoot yeah. the ending, or reshoot whatever part of it's not working. Reshoot the whole movie. I mean, 
it has happened before where major chunks of movies are reshot and you know like movies that we all know like rogue one or uh mm-hmm. you know world war z where crazy amounts of the movie were rewritten and reshot after the movie was made and instead of like being a 90 million dollar loss yeah maybe they eat another 20 30 million dollars to get there but then they make a movie that's an actual hit yeah, I, I've heard that Francis Ford Coppola will sometimes make a movie, edit a movie, and then make a movie again. So that's that's. that's I, what I've actually heard that about the Paranormal Activity movies that they actually mm. put it in the budget that they are going to reshoot the entire movie three times. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's because I mean it's the, a low budget movie, but yeah, well, but, it's also like all shot on digital, all you know, like limited locations, limited actors. So it's not like you know they have to have a massive uh, war scene shot practically and redo it. It's like yeah, it's someone's in the kitchen and all the drawers open mysteriously all at the same time. You know, you can you can reshoot that. You can find it in your heart. <laughs> but I've heard that they I've heard that they'll yeah. do that. I don't I don't know that for a fact. So uh, don't at me. All right, so let's get to the interview with Larkin Seipel. Here's Larkin. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we are unbelievably excited today to have Larkin Seipel, who's shot a bunch of amazing music videos, commercials, and movies and stuff that you've seen, but I think probably the most zeitgeisty movie of the year, a movie that uh, I personally just loved and, and, and made a point of seeing in the theater, and that's Everything Everywhere All at Once. Holy crap, we couldn't be more excited to have you on the show, Larkin. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Oh, no, no, no. We, it, it is us who are stoked. In fact, Ilya is here, too. He will chime in. and A hundred percent. And Ben, I, I'm not going to steal your thunder. You go ahead and drive. But I, I got one or two questions this time for sure. So anyway, I want to start by talking about Everything Everywhere All at Once, a movie that when I saw, even when I saw the trailer, I was like, holy crap, what an amazing movie, what a movie that promises so much and really delivers on it. But it has like so many different looks so many different continuities, separate continuities. It, it is a multiverse project. Uh, talk to me just about like when you got that script and uh, you'd worked with the Daniels before, so I'm assuming that you were their go-to person, uh, but when you got that script, what went through your head when you were reading it? it it's just such an amazing uh, story. I think the first thing that went through my head was, my God, this is long. <laughs> um, <laughs> the first draft was much longer than than this one. There's whole other universes in it that got cut out that I loved. Um, oh no! But the, can you tell? Yeah, can you the, tell us any of the universes that got cut out? Well, one of them I, we actually shot, and it ended in the cutting room floor. There's oh. a whole sequence of um, we call it the Noodleverse, which when I read it was like a Pixar film, but it was you know where there Michelle is a string of pasta and Jobu her daughter is is a, like a little macaroni of pasta. And they're in the bottom of a, of a swirling thing of pasta and throwing days coming up, you know, and the chef takes the pasta oh, and no. throws it against the wall to see if it sticks. Um, <laughs> her daughter really wants to get thrown and, you know, she thinks it's a way to like, you know, that, that she's, the chef's never going to pick her because she's never going to rise to the surface because she's a silly little macaroni. Um, and she doesn't, you know, doesn't believe in herself. And so, you know, that culminates of Michelle who's string pasta, like saying like, I'm going to lift you up. And she literally goes in and strings herself through the macaroni and then pulls her up to the surface. So we shot, we spent two days shooting puppeteered pastas and giant macaroni pieces and giant vats of water with different variations on green screen. We had puppet macaroni. Oh man. I I hope they put that on the Blu-ray or something. (laughs) 
It better be. It's there's one shot in the movie in like the middle climax when every like the the final climax and everything's coming together. There's just randomly a shot of a hand of pasta throwing it. It <laughs> makes no sense in the film, but it's in the film. So the universe <laughs> theoretically survived the edit, but the yeah, we spent two days getting very wet, shooting very silly things on the green screen stage with pasta. I, I wanted to jump in about the length of this because I, I know you say your first reaction was, "Oh my god, how long this is." Even though now it's running times about two hours, 20 minutes, and that's after all the cutting, it's not like you made one movie. There are so many cuts in this movie that it looks yeah. like you made like six movies. It looks like it was six movies condensed into two hours and 20 minutes just in the amount of shots and setups and things that are going on. Can you talk at all about what it was like to undertake and deconstruct what was on the page? Well... I knew it was only later did I realize how crazy it was because we were color grading it and our colorist was like, what have you gotten me into? Because <laughs> he's trying, when you, when you color grade, you you basically like you, you're constantly making looks. And he was like, I'm having to ref every shot. I'm referencing a different look. This is going to take us ages to finish. And then he got to the part where there's a thousand individual frames of Michelle's face. Yeah. And he was just like, what did I do oh, to deserve no. this? <laughs> um, He's like, hands down, hardest thing I've ever had to do. So I was like, okay, good. We've we've done, we've 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 achieved <laughs> one achievement. We've broken someone's more, broken someone's <laughs> pride. Um, no, he. Uh, it was I mean it was really fun to make. Is the thing that's how we did it. I mean that's really the solution to doing something as arduous as this. Was it was really fun. So you got really excited about these small little details and all these little transitions and like how to shoot scenes in the most efficient way possible. We kept like, cause there's a ton of like scenes of them just running around the building and having to like be like, we can't go down there. There's police, we have to run up there. We should go into here. All those little scenes were like, how can we just do this in one shot? You know, and then we had fun with like, you know, our great steady cam operator, Ari Robbins, who was, you know, we were really lucky to have, he did La La Land mm. and all these epic films. And he was on our really absurd movie shooting, you know, butt plug fights. Um, so we had, we had, we had a lot of talent the, on the set. The butt plug fight. How can anyone not love a movie with a butt plug fight? Right? You know, my mom liked it. So I was, I was pretty happy in the end. I was like, well, if my mom thought it was funny, then I guess it's okay. America will survive. Like, um, but we had a lot of great talent and we shot the whole thing in one location, which for the most part, so, so that made it really possible. So we could Wait, actually like, what? Our, you shot the whole thing in one location. Most of it. It feels like we shot in a bunch of different, we shot, uh, I think it was epic in, in scope. The scope of this movie feels infinite. Yes. We shot, <laughs> I think it was the 36 day shoot. And yeah. yeah, that's, that's the other insane part. I'd heard that before. I, I talked to, uh, I talked to one of your camera operators actually. And that includes two days oh, really? of, of, that includes two days of noodle puppetry, correct? <laughs> that, that does not include yeah, noodle puppetry. Include that, noodle was noodle. Done, that was done. There was two days, sorry, principal photography was 36 days. And then we spent a day shooting rocks and then two days shooting Michelle and green screen in Paris remotely mm. from Los Angeles. Um, a lot was happening. <laughs> it was a very messy, it was a very messy ending. But yeah, we spent 36 days and I think 25 of those days was all, we're all in an abandoned, not abandoned, but like a, a foreclosed mortgage lending business. I forget, mm. like, uh, I to remember their name, but it's in Simi Valley, it's this big office and you know, that you see that atrium, which is cubicles surrounded by like this mall, like staircase of a water with some water features. And I had shot there before, I was kind of obsessed with it and we had scouted it like, with the Daniels, you always end up scouting things in advance just to be like, we had some really dumb ideas. 
even before we get to budgeting, what if we start looking at locations that we could maybe do it all there and that'll really actually make this film doable. So we scouted it and it was too big and crazy and we're like, no, we can't do it. And then we looked at everything else in LA and we're like, maybe we have to go shoot there. And we embraced it and our production designer did like really beautiful concepts for how to dress a building of that scale in our budget, which was to like do it like a resolution and that, you know, the further away from camera, the dumber it gets. So, you know, close mm. up, it's a perfect computer screen. 20 feet away, it's cardboard. The back wall is just construction paper. It's nothing. It's gibberish. And that's how they did it because we, you know, we were, we had to dress these large spaces, but also allowed us to like build sets. Like there's the whole like alpha RV, that weird futuristic RV where he's wearing Oakley glasses of LEDs that was shot in the cafeteria there. We also built their home in the cafeteria. Oh, wow. And then like a lot of sets were there. There was like, like the dominatrix office space where they have the sign spinner fight mm. of the weird S&M closet. Mm -hmm. That was there. That was this weird set. If we were just like, we'll use it. <laughs> we'll figure it out. <laughs> we brought in like a trans light. We like, we re rigged the ceiling or like the elevator was there. We found the elevator, which is an old set, and we just moved it. There's actually a shot the production designer loves where there's like, he's, at the, there's a big stairway case fight at the end of the film. And if you look at it, you see the elevator and the floor below it, there is no elevator. And the production designer loves, <laughs> that he's, loves that Easter egg, kind of like the ambulance coming out of the truck at the ending of Die Hard, where you're like, <laughs> everyone, all these guys are coming out of a truck and it makes sense. And then you get to the end of it and there also is an ambulance coming out. And you're like, there's no way that could have possibly happen but no one catches that no one catches that that little like you know misstep that's hilarious i feel like i need to see this movie a hundred times to kind of catch all that stuff like i've only seen it the one time i saw it was one of the movies that again covid be damned i was like i, I think this needs to be seen in the theater my wife and i went and saw it got a babysitter and we're just like blown blown away but i feel like there's so much attention to small details to me it kind of recalls like uh michelle gondry uh like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind oh yeah it recalls the, i don't know if there's a name for it but there's a kind of play in a surrealist absurdist kind of filmmaking that feels also at the same time very grounded and, and physical like not relying on lots of visual effects or anything like you really built all that stuff you were really in these spaces you know there may, may not have been a i mean there definitely is visual effects and there is definitely some some computer oh, yeah, stuff yeah. going on in here but uh there is so much effects that you were doing practically on the set with lighting there are lighting no, that's my point, yeah, yeah. lighting effects you know across this whole thing there's so 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 many different lighting effects um how much of the of the lighting effects is your cr own creative you know impulse when from when you're reading the script saying we need a really cool lighting effect and how much of that is is on the page that you're uh, translating into into images a lot of it is there's very little on the page. There's um, the only one like that. I don't even know if it was on the page. It's hard to say what's on the page of these guys because the script is very much like just the bare bones of what we're making for the most part. And then your conversations with them, they're like, yeah, I know. Cause like in the script it says, and then they have a fanny pack fight. Yeah. <laughs> there's still like two pages of what happens in the fanny pack fight. It's just this line. You're like, oh, we're, we're going to, they're just, okay, cool. This is going to be a thing. <laughs> but no, the, the idea of the swirling light technique and sadly i didn't actually get it to where i wanted to it's based off of this lighting test that a director did called for this film called the inferno but the idea is that the angle of light also changes how you view an actor kind of like you know a villain is uplit you know and a heroine is flat lit and the idea that you know whatever you change the, the angle it'll shift how they look and we wanted to do that and we wanted to do that with colored lighting and the idea was like 
I don't think it fluidly made it into the film, but the idea was like, as the universes shift, the light on her face changes. And so the idea of the swirling light is her in all the different universes. But the challenge is of getting the light to do that weird thing where it changes how your face looks. We only did it a couple times, but like, it's a matter of like inches in terms of the relationship to the light. And we were always doing these last minute, we'd shoot the scene and then the Daniels would be like, all right, bring in the lightning rig, just shove, which is just a triangle of Titan tubes. And we would just shove it in front of a shell and be like, stand here. And we have to like measure the camera, measure all that. And then sometimes it would, it would do that shifting light sequence. And sometimes it wouldn't, it was just because she was like leaning back two inches or like the height was off by something. You can see it a couple of times, but it's very tricky to get right. That lighting technique had to be portable. So we had to be able to recreate it wherever we were. Um, which looking back now, I don't think had to be, we, we were probably too precious about, but um, that was the idea behind it was he wanted to be able to have her, have her in that kind of crazy swirling light look practically on every set. Mm. Some sets we would just finish in the Daniels and be like, let's just shoot it here. I'm sure we're going to use it somewhere. Let's just bring in the rig. Let's shoot it. <laughs> Um, so we've we've talked on the podcast over the years to a lot of DPs who also direct, and I'm always curious about how they bifurcate their minds to, to work that way. I believe this is the first time we've talked to someone who works with a directing team, and you've worked with the Daniels before. How does that break out for you? Is there one one of the two directors who mostly talks to you, or is it interchangeable? Or, you know, like whenever we hear about directing teams, it's like they share a brain. How is working with a directing team impact you as a, as a cinematographer? There's pros and cons. I've actually worked with a lot of directing teams. I'm really good friends with a directing team named Twin, um, mm. who I did a, a film with called Ken. Uh, but the Daniels, I've been working with for a long time, and they are a hive mind is a big part of it. Part of, you know, when we make movies or anything together, there's a lot of fun to be had. So a lot of them are like, kind of, they're kind of like, I want to be the one to go in and puppet the arm and do the thing while we're recording. And then the <laughs> other one will be like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on the fan and blow the hair. And I'm like, one of you has to watch the monitor. Like one of you has to watch the monitor or like, you know, they want to go and be like the off camera, like baboon that's not really there that we're going to put in later or something like that. Like they, they really love the experience of, of making a film, which is actually very unique to them. Like they like, when they do a project, it's not about, it's not wholly about the end result. It's about the experience too, is a big thing for them. They want, like, since they're spending so much of their life, they want that to be something we remember and they're going to make an effort to make it memorable, if that makes sense, as opposed to just getting it done, which I have never, haven't really seen anywhere else. But the, the only negatives to working with a directing duo is there's a certain intimacy you get when you're working with a director, just a single director, and that you kind of become partners in crime and you end up like, you end up having a hive mind that way. You know, you've spent so long talking about the shots and execution and pitching ideas that, you know, on set, you know, you can just, you already know what you're going to do and you've agreed upon it. And that doesn't fully exist with directing duos. They're already doing that. You can't really like, you feel like an outsider no matter what you do. But it's just getting used to that. There's a great metaphor here about, um, you know, thruples and, um, <laughs> and role playing and poly, poly, whatever. Polyamory. Poly, polyamory. There you go. I, I, I love um, how this conversation's just turned down this, this, you know, this bypass. You should talk to Daniels way. about that. They have, a, they have a lot of opinions about that stuff too, actually. Well, um, let's get on. <laughs> it's a different form of intimacy, but I still love it, especially working with them. Um, and it works for some and it works for those networked of duos where I'm like, this was a terrible idea and, and you guys should not be a duo. That is not the, <laughs> that is not the Daniels there. They're really wonderful together. And they both, you know, both get some, sometimes one is more visual than the other. Sometimes the other one has more specific acting notes. 
sometimes one of them just wants to make the sound effects in the background. Like it's, um, it's pretty fun and they, and they're very cohesive. The one thing is they really both know how it cuts in their head, which is like the, the fun part. I can ask either or, um, and you know, sometimes, you know, one of them will be more of a producer type and be like, we got to move on. And the other one's a bit more of a perfectionist. And I'll be like, oh, I'm gonna, I really like this shot. I'm going to go tell him I want another take and not <laughs> the other one. And vice versa, where I'm like, I think we got it. We should move and I'll go tell the other one. Oh, it's like, like when the, playing mom and dad against each other. <laughs> kind that. of, and it, and it shifts and moves, but you know, they both trust each other well too. Like there's none of the weird backstabby, like, you know, childish antics that can come up when you work with someone for so long. They're not worried about one and both having an opinion about everything if they're not in the room like they they have, they have trust and so you can you don't have to do the thing where you know if someone's in the bathroom and you need to move on it's like you can ask the question and know that's going to be the right answer um, um you, you brought something up that i feel like i need for my own soul i i need to understand more about this and when we were talking to seamus mcgarvey about cyrano this came up as well and it's Making the set actually fun because you're right. So many sets can feel like it is just business, business, business. And when you're making the film, you've got this endless list that you're never going to get to the bottom of. How how do you keep it fun? Oh, you know, I think, you know, initially they start with like a summer camp approach that there's a group warm up every day. You know, it starts with like, hi, my name is Larkin. My favorite animal is a chimpanzee. Really? And you do that. Yeah. And then like, all right, cool. Everyone take the, take the animal from next to them. And that is their animal, but they have to use the animal sound and everyone gets very confused. And then it's just, everyone's making animal sounds. And it's like, all right, now everyone has to act like the animal. Like you kind of inadvertently signed up for this acting class, mm. like for the, that's the first like five minutes of your morning or some mornings will be stretches. Some morning we'll do Remember one was like slow-mo kung fu fight where everyone's like moving like this and like reacting to punches and moving, you know? couple days jamie lee curtis led some very inappropriate yoga stretches for the whole group oh wow um some days is guided meditation um but they keep it light some days we'll just run in a circle and scream but you're doing that with like you know 50 60 people big burly grips i was about and, you know, to say yeah pas that are like what are we doing is this a film set like that type of like um they keep it very fun and loose and the directors are also very quick to to never take things too seriously and to always be the first people to do the thing that no one wants to do, whether it's jump into like the freezing cold pool or be the ones to like get covered in like fake poop or what have you. Like they're in the, they're on the battle lines, if you will, like the, and we, we didn't have a lot of time or money. I, just, I know it sounds silly with like a budget of like $15 million, but for that type of shoot that just, you know, you go through that very quickly. Yeah, um, no, that is an epic shoot. And the stuff that you have going on in that movie, I mean, it is not an uncomplicated movie. I, I, I'm shocked that it was made for $15 million. Yeah, no, I, I mean, we, we, when we heard the, when I heard the numbers, like, great, we can do it. And then we started making it and it was like, oh shit, I didn't realize how many, cause Swiss Army Man before was like lean and mean for like $3 million. And we had nothing on that, like literally nothing. It was, it was like some lights, some friends and like, you know, a couple of days we got real crazy with some water work and some wire work. And on this, I'm like, oh no, where every day is, is stunts and explosions. And, and there's a ton of wire work in this film, surprisingly. Um, I, be I believe People getting it. <laughs> pulled up and moved around and yeah. And so like, it's like, and you had so many stunts. I think action films are expensive because you have so many stunts and the stunt team is just constantly working. I want to jump in real quick here. Uh, I watched the movie again last night. And one of the things that uh, I really enjoyed watching on, on second viewing 
was all the little stuff that is snuck into this movie, like, you know, the sign twirler on the way to the the IRS. And uh, there, there's so many. <laughs> oh, there's, good. You got there's that. so many great little details. But I have to say that uh, upon first viewing, it, it all just kind of washes over you because it's so much. But I try to make mental note at the moment that I decide that I am all in on a movie, like the moment that it happens. And it is inside the elevator when we get the flashback sequence of Evelyn's life and Evelyn's life together with Raymond. And that sequence in itself is like a little movie. And I can't like there are so many different shots and there's so many different things and so many different setups. Can you talk a little bit about crafting that really, really brief but incredibly visual backstory of her life? Yeah, that was like, I mean, that's something I was really looking forward to. And again, to me, that's the whole like, if you can, if you accept this, you know, you're in for the ride. It's a big change in pace. And in fact, the most of the story up until that point is deliberately not slower, but like very few, not a lot of cutting, a lot of small Spielberg wonders, if you will. And then you get to that and it's like an overload. And that's to me is almost the Daniels thing. And the thing that they love the most is how much story and how little time, like, can you like, to me, it's like a drug to be like, I just, you know, you see someone's <laughs> whole life. And this was something that we were, we were building towards, even through the script process. We were like, oh, flashbacks are always going to be four, three. And then we had the really silly idea of like, well, if the door is open, but they open in the four, three in the elevator. And then that perfectly frames the flashbacks. Um, those are all very specific. And initially the concept was like the wings of a butterfly metaphor, you know, can become a hurricane or tornado. Initially, the, a lot of the divergent past was Michelle running as a child down a path mm. and every choice she did changed something. So like there's one where she's running and she gets told to stop. And that's the one where she meets Waymond. And then there's one where she's running and trips and stabs at her eyes of sticks. And that's becomes the opera verse. That was originally a, more of a theme with Michelle's journey, but I think it got too, became too much. And they just are like, no, there's a version where she's with Wayman and there's a version without her. But those were all specifically designed. And then we shot them in the last two weeks of the story. I could talk, it's so blurry. There's so many different versions of her, of her background. But, but there's but, um, time-lapse in there too. There's all kinds of stuff. Well, I, say, I assume it's time-lapse. Maybe it was fake time-lapse afterwards. No, but. no, you're right. I, I, I just rewatched the sequence too, right before this. I was like, I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk about it. And I watched it and I was like, I can't remember all of what I just watched. <laughs> there is so much in there. There's probably 50, there's probably 50 shots just in that little section. Yeah, there's like a... Yeah, because then she goes and they get the laundromat. And my favorite shot in the film is actually a shot of her leaning back against the laundromat. Oh, no, I love that like, shot. Like, she's framed right. And there's, you know, long yeah. depth perception on the left. That is a beautiful, beautiful shot. And she's looking really concerned. No, I, that that shot that jumped out at me, too. That That's a great shot. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Um, that was all planned out. That was all bullet lined, you know, and you can kind of see, you know, her life is kind of this weird, like scrappy survival. And then she has a daughter mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, like all of this is brought back into her and then it starts to fade away again. So you can kind of see those highs and lows. And we played a, a ton of different LUTs. And I'm not supposed to talk about LUTs on the show. <laughs> you can talk about um, LUTs on the show. That's fine. You know, look, we're going to we're gonna talk about aspect ratio. We're going to talk about things just because, you know, yeah. one, you, you brought it up. You brought up aspect ratio. You're bringing up LUTs. But uh, but yeah, you know, uh, dive in, no, dive it's, in it's, as far as you want to go. It's fine. It's the, the tools for telling a story. I mean, like when we say we're not into the tech, it's like if you tell us how you meticulously set up the Sony Venice you know, three years from now, that will be useless information to everybody. And then I so turn the knob three notches. Which is good. I think that's the best way to talk about it because then people can actually understand it. Um, yeah, so we basically created a, a ton of different looks. Even throughout the flashbacks, we tried to shift the time. You know, we used more Fuji-based film stock from Asia 
references for some of the earlier stuff. And then we use more iconic American film stock references for when they actually move to the States. You know, there's like a Kodachrome, Kodak vibe that happens once they get into the laundromat. Um, and the colors shift and they, they lost greens and yellows and, and small things like that. We even, we built a lot on set. My DIT would just try things on set. Um, or the guy who kind of colors the images while you're shooting and uses continuity. Um, you know, we would, it was very, <laughs> we had to get very creative and generally have a lot of meetings constantly to talk about what the hell we were shooting next week. Well, this actually uh, brings me to, uh, we have a listener question. We don't always have one Ooh. of those, but I feel like this listener question definitely addresses what you're talking about. And also it's a question that I'm always interested in, in how people do it, but especially in a movie like this. So it, this comes from Miliux. Hope I pronounced that right. How did he get to organize all those frames with continuity of action across the many places, costumes, backgrounds, lighting? So this is something I'm always interested in is like, you know, you have an idea. Uh, it could be as simple as like colors are going to get more green as the movie goes on or we're going to use wider angle lenses or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, it's like when you're there on the day, it's easy to be lost and be like, where exactly in that continuity am I? But in this movie, you're overseeing dozens of continuities. And it sounds like you're also picking up these, you know, probably one line out of the script uh, moments as you're able to pick them up. So how do you keep all that? Where do you organize it? How do you organize it? Get, get technical on this. Is it a is it a notebook? Is it scriptation? Is it a bunch of post-it notes? Is it all in your head? How do you do it? I mean, a lot of it is, you know, we all met in advance because it's more, you know, the sometimes the costumes do a lot more for a sequence than the lighting does, like the Rekakuni sequence is iconic because of the white shirts and blue hats. Not iconic, but it's like, that's why you remember it. It's less about this like weird, like, you know, knockoff stir fry spot. It's more of like, you just remember those outfits. And that was the big part of it. And we leaned into that, you know, that all of the universes are referencing for the most part films that we love, but specifically memories of films that we love, not the actual film itself. You know, like Recognition was an ode to, to PTA, you know, combining Magnolia, and um, the Adam Sandler one, God, uh, push your glove. glove. Yeah. Um, but you know, these really strong American colors, these really rich blues and brighter highlights and harder light and like these kind of like more severe street sequences, you know, like that was our big reference for that. And then we, we, we didn't have any time or money. So we're like, cool, well, we're going to commit to the colors in the, in the, in the wardrobe. I'm going to do my best of lighting and we're going to shoot anamorphic, not going to shoot on the anamorphics that they used, but you know, that was the big choice there. And then like all the other universes started, you know, like, you know, the bagel verse, which is like desaturated, creepy, lifted shadow, moody, cool one. I forget where it came from. For me, it was based off of childhood films that scared me. It's like never ending story two mm. um, <laughs> slash one is part of it. Like the princess from one mm, yeah. is like in this very like kind of weird, like <laughs> sterile environment. And then two has a very creepy crystalline palace type vibe happening with smoke and, and all their like even like the Wonka Y versus you know based on the mood for love but if you watch it it actually looks nothing like in the mood for love it's much more referencing like Chunking Express or Fallen Angels or specifically Fallen Angels for me that's the film that I like saw like 50 times and all the other universes like you know 2001 is a very much like the hot dog monkey hand scene we were like it's kind of out of focus and soft and anamorphic and like Kubrick's is really sharp and very clear and we were like where we can the location our props the terrible monkey outfits like it could use a little bit of love or nostalgia which we kind of imbued through using like older anamorphic lenses on that one i think i said before like the 
Hot Dog Hands wanted to be like a Todd Haynes romantic drama. And then we start shooting it and we're like, that is inappropriate for how silly, for how silly this is. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't be trying to do that. We're taking away some of the fun. So we then kind of became more of a romantic comedy of an ode to Netflix in a way of like all of their films, which is why the aspect ratio is two to one, which no one notices. No one notices that. I I, I disagree. And actually where I really notice it is when you're doing the montages of swirling light, when you're seeing a thousand different Evelyn's, uh, well, okay. Maybe it's just nerds like me who see all the aspect ratios changing really quickly all around in the, in these montages. But, but, uh, no, on second viewing, you 100% notice them. And so anyone who did not notice that, I'm going to encourage them to go and buy it on Vudu or Amazon or Apple TV or any of the places you can buy this. Because on second viewing, uh, if you weren't catching all those aspect ratios, I think you definitely do on repeating. We, we talk about this a lot on the podcast is that, you know, we're sort of in this era of peak TV and a lot of things that would have been movies previously are coming out as television shows. But I feel like this is a movie that like feels like it needs to be a movie. This is this is a closed loop that is one feature film and to me kind of shows the power of what a feature film can be in an era where I feel like feature films aren't foregrounded in culture in the way they were, you know, even 10 years ago. Was there ever a discussion about doing something like this as a TV show? Because you could certainly make a TV show out of this and have a weekly multiverse uh, situation with these characters. No, I don't think, I don't, no, there was never a discussion behind it. I mean, the Daniels have plenty of ideas for television. Be, be afraid. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, and they've actually directed a lot of television, but um, no, this was always going to be a movie from my memory. I don't think they ever thought about it as a show. Um, I think there's something very, and also I, as a cinematographer, I prefer working on film. It's, it's, it's much more compelling i think for people making something to have to know that there's two hours is is everything you know um the idea of extending that to six eight or ten hours is great for character development but is also like it's like you can't knock it out of the it's really hard to knock it out of the park in a way like you you like the you know two hours itself is a challenge you know i get excited by 90 minute screenplays i'm like yeah here we go we got a good shot of doing something great um you know, because you're also, I mean, no matter who you are, you're chasing perfection to a degree and just trying to like, not necessarily make every scene perfect, but to make every scene work or to try to make them be great. And so the less scenes you have to make, the, the better odds you are that you're going to have like an overall better project. Um, this movie is, is the, the challenge to that and that there's, there's too many scenes almost um, that you have to try to make compelling. Um, but luckily it's fast, even though it's long, which is a weird, which is a weird concept. I ended up reshooting some stuff on green screen because we just needed more stuff in the Bagelverse. There's definitely a pickup of Michelle from like a year later in the Bagelverse that does not match at all. But it's great because you're still wearing this like weird, like peasant shroud. And it, it totally, it's fine because the movie's weird enough that you realize that any pickups that don't match don't really matter. Like, it's such a crazy movie. They're like, oh, she looked different in that shot. But whatever. Like, that's a, that's a different universe, maybe. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I feel like it's sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card that you have in a concept like that. Yeah, that was the one blessing in the film is that, you know, continuity errors were okay. <laughs> it, it was not long after that sort of sequence and intercutting with sort of a flashback of Evelyn and Waymond and, uh, you know, uh, in their, their alternate sort of fancy successful uh, world that uh, I remember the guy sitting next to me in the theater got up, shook his head and left. So, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I got to bring it up here a little bit like, you know, it, it, incredible reaction to this movie, incredibly overwhelmingly positive. But there is this 
portion of the audience that does not get it, does not want to get it, or I think was super frustrated by this movie. What are your feelings about this? Um, I mean, that's probably a good thing. I think if you appease everyone, you're going to make something pretty boring or it's also like a very intense take on storytelling. It's a lot. It's a lot spread out and you, you know, it is very confusing. And as the directors were making it, they talked about good confusion and bad confusion and how they did mm. want people to be confused. You know, like even the, the idea of verse jumping throughout the film is kind of weird and you're not quite sure what it, what it means or how it works, you know, and they explain it four times. And then at the very end, the third act, you know, like Wayman's like, I think if they do something stupid, they get powers. Like, like it's like, if you haven't, if you haven't, like, you know, the train, the train will catch up to you at that point, And you are now aware of how this works. I, I think we got to talk about the chaos, climactic fight scene that happens on the stairs in this movie. That whole sequence, that whole giant sort of showdown with the googly eyes, it's just insanity and it's slow motion and it's wind effects and light effects and uh, the paper flying every, everywhere. That to me looks like you probably spent a serious amount of time getting through that. Can you tell us at all about that? Yeah, I mean, that the big theme for that one was a whole shift in tone because we had, you know, we had done all these fights and the Daniels wanted it to be more operatic. And we had actually referenced another Wong Kar Wai film called The Grand Master. And there's this beautiful train station sequence where they have this fight all bathed in like a golden light. And we <laughs> they asked for that. And I was like, how do we, how am I going to do that in here? And so we covered the atrium with these big, big kind of like LED blanket lights and, you know, these big soft lights and then created a pulsing effect. And then me and the Daniels both kind of did like a little DJ session on the dimmer board and created our own different pulses. So as she gets higher up, the pulsing gets more dramatic, but to shoot it, it just, you know, we, we had two cameras and we kind of worked our way up, but in the very top is where it gets kind of crazier because she then fights her daughter through all these different universes and every punch is a different universe. So we had to choreograph a fight to a click track, kind of like in music where there's like a constant rhythm. So they could be like one, two punch and kick, flip, pull her hair. So like the, like on every action that way. We could also then program the lighting because we, in order to do that, we had to then pick out all these different places for them to fight online, which is like a somewhat crazy task in that you're like, there's, you can have them fight anywhere. Well, what do you pick? And then our producers were like, you're going to pick the fight that has free stock footage. That's what you're going to pick. <laughs> we're like, we'll pick, we'll pick, we'll, we'll pick the free stock footage. This will be great. And so we went through all these weird, like there's like a house on fire. There's like a train in Japan. It's running through in the background. There's just like a random like European street at night. There's a scene of sparklers. And I was like, come on, God. It's how they can recreate sparkler lights. It's such a specific look. And so we slowly built, like we would have like the stand-ins like freeze in fighting mode. And then I would turn, turn the lights on and do a live comp with the background where you basically, if you're shooting green screen, someone can change the background while you're there to the actual like, you know, to the house on fire. And then I would kind of add like some C-stands and lights, like some Titans to uplight them like it was fire. And then they'd oh unfreeze it and they go to the next one and I'd add more lights. So I have some behind the scenes photos and that's really stupid because <laughs> there's there's like normally, normally you can like plot it out and there's like a really beautiful concept to like lighting work. This one, we just kept adding lights because they kept adding different scenes. So if you look at it, it's this jungle of sea stands and lights at weird angles that only turn on for two seconds, um, you know, and then the sparkler scene happens. We had to add like way too many lights, which is like these little flickering LEDs that all turn on 
and sparkle for like hot, like five seconds, then turn off. And then on top of that, we had them like fighting in like all these other little tiny sets that again, we had already shot other scenes at like the hospital scene where she was born that same terrible stage had a prison set where we shot her and her daughter fighting through like a jail, a jail hallway. I, I have to know where, where was that? What, what, uh, it's called, what? it's called DC stages and it's gone, which is a huge bummer, oh, but man. like the Daniels have always been fans of it because they're like, think of how many different scenes we could shoot in one day. Oh yeah. Um, and we think we did, we did like 20 or to 30, or maybe we did, no, we did more than that there, but we like, yeah, they would just, again, there's one angle that works. You just go and it's like, you know, we no, would I, just like, we, it's, yeah. it's something that like, if you don't live in LA, you're unaware that there are these places <laughs> like Lacey street studios or I, I, oh, yeah. you can get I don't know if the Herald, looks within a, a quarter block. Yeah. <laughs> I, the, I don't know if the Herald examiner is still around, but I worked on a project that shot at the Herald examiner and it was just like, it, like you could make it look like anything. Like literally there, there are a thousand standing sets that are just there all the time. Yeah. It's pretty, amazing. they're, they're becoming a fewer and fewer. I think their capital arts still exists mm. in Simi Valley, which is it's got everything. It's got like a weird sewer set that I've been dying to use. Mm. Um, but the Daniels were like, you know, they're very specific directors that they went there and they're like, great. We'll use this little room as a room for blind Michelle to wake up. Or like we staged like the, all the Kung Fu fights there where she's like the action star universe where Michelle is like, you know, there's like a Kung Fu tournament and then she's on, then she's like behind the scenes of her filming a movie. And then there's like her in wardrobe, getting her makeup done. And like all of those were shot there. It was like, again, like a sprint through like how many setups could we do in one day? I have a recollection of the, uh, must be the lawyer universe. Cause I, I, cause I know that's one of those sets that, that are there. Oh, yes. There's like, in, they're in a courtroom and like grabbing oh, yeah. the gavel. It's like, it's <laughs> Yeah, the costume, yeah, Shirley gave an insane costume to her. She's wearing a tuxedo that has three extra hands on each arm. <laughs> it makes no sense. You know, um, Shirley had such crazy costumes. And I was like, why is she wearing that? The Daniels were like, it's two seconds. It'll be great. Like, let's just shoot it. That's a great set. I would, I'm, bu I'm bummed it's gone, but it, it, it did take up a lot of space. And it was very dirty and poorly managed. So. <laughs> Let, let's back up. I mean, I feel like we could talk about everything everywhere all at once for uh, the next five hours because there's just so much to unpack in that movie and, and so much visual ingenuity going on in that. But visual ingenuity is something that I think is is kind of a trademark of so much of your work. I always want to know whenever we talk to somebody, what was the moment? What was the thing in your life that made you go cinematography is a career I could pursue? And what kind of pointed you down that path? I don't know how anyone really gets in the film. I wasn't someone that was like, I want to be a filmmaker off the bat. I think I just really love movies and I ultimately really love storytelling. Um, specifically storytelling, literally someone like out of campfires telling you a story. But I remember like as a kid, someone like describing the entire plot of Face Off to me at summer camp one summer <laughs> and just kind of being blown away. Yeah, I got into, I just realized I like movies a lot and then started kind of messing around with some cameras and ultimately decided to go to film school. And when I got to film school, everyone wanted to be a director, which makes sense because who would he? And then I ended up crewing and becoming an electrician and working on a bunch of student films as a gapper. And I slowly was like, oh, well, if I'm a director, I can work on one project a year. But if I'm a cinematographer, you know, I could be a part of telling multiple stories, like a lot. Like I could, I could, you know, have to work on 10 projects a year. And I really liked the collaborative effort of it and the being around people. I like the idea that you're not by yourself crafting and whittling down this thing that you're with a, a group trying to make something. And that's where I kind of really got attached to it. And then I ended up really 
falling in love with lighting. Like I love cameras and lenses and all of that, but like lighting to me is everything. And then I realized I could, I could actually express how I saw something emotionally through lighting. Mm -hmm. And then I just took off from there. I was like, well, this is what I want to do. Then I moved to LA and just started shooting music videos and was PAing and working on reality TV and like one music video led to another music video, but I just was slowly doing these little tiny things in the industrials. And then eventually I had to quit all of my other like jobs, being an electrician or doing reality TV with the hopes that I would make enough money as a DP. And it took a while and I lost all my savings, but I eventually got to a point where, which is crazy to say, I was like able to survive only doing music videos. Um, especially, especially these days, like music videos are, you know, kind of the middle class has fallen out of music videos. Oh yeah. I mean, the music videos that I was shooting weren't, weren't fancy either too. They were like much smaller budgets and you end up giving half of your budget to getting a nicer camera or the lights or for paying for crew or things like that. Like I never thought of music. I still don't think of music videos as a means to make a living. I do think of them as a means to advance into other places and to meet interesting directors. So eventually I got into commercials um, by shooting um, fashion videos on a 5D. Uh, a couple of directors really? named Skinny started, I shot a bunch of their stuff on the 5D. They would just, we just piggyback still shoots. And then I like, um, they got offered like a big beauty commercial and somehow they convinced them to bring me along. Um, and then I started doing beauty stuff. So all of a sudden I was doing like these like scrappy music videos and then shooting like, you know, a model applying lotion on her shoulder in Malibu <laughs> like during the week to make a living. And then like slowly, then those commercials just became more generic commercials. And I was able to make a living off doing commercials. And then a lot more of the music videos I was doing, I could start making choices about and picking ones that I really liked or directors I really liked. It's kind of like they were like mini features in a way, as opposed to like just taking any feature you can get, you're like waiting for like the right thing. So I spent a long time just doing, you know, commercials for a living and then trying to shoot really, you know, beautiful or interesting music videos. And then I stumbled in the, in the features. I got my first feature because it turned down for what, which is a music video I shot to Daniels. That um, is such yeah. an amazing video. I, I remember when I first saw that video, that was when I discovered the Daniels and I, I just became obsessed with that video. It's so brilliant and insane conceptually. Can you talk about the production of that? Like, how did you go about even designing it? Anyone who hasn't seen that video needs to check it out. Well, just like everything ever all at once, it was one location. Um, it was shot with friends and it was all kind of creative, clever uses of how to do as much as possible in as little time. So it's a video about someone dancing so hard or humping so hard that they, you know, they keep falling through the floor. Yeah. And so we, we shot a, a really, really weird stage called the escarpment, um, which is in Vernon, which is like a, near that pig slaughterhouse. Oh my God. I know Vernon um, very well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right next door to it. And it had all these weird sets and like a weird warehouse and we didn't like anything there. And then we, but, but there has residents as well. It's very weird. He walked into the, into the kitchen where the residents store their food and eat out of. And we were like, oh, this kitchen actually looks like a real place. Let's shoot here. So we just redressed the kitchen three different times to be three different apartments. And then it was just kind of handheld. We created three different looks. I think we shot it in two days at most. And then, yeah, that was, I mean, it wasn't too surreal in that we just had a lot of silly gags of like how, how to fall through the floor. Like you forget, we just, we just literally shot like a profile of like fake ceiling and the Dan Kwan bursting through it. It also stars Dan Kwan is one of the Daniels. Oh, um, he's, he's the guy who's, who's, his dick won't stop hopping or whatever you want to call it. 
And then Dan Schneider was the guy operating the dick, which was just a broom handle. It was just like a broom through sweatpants. And the reason Quan actually is starring in it is because the Daniels didn't, they couldn't put someone through that. They're like, I don't think I can hire someone and then have someone shove a broom handle like between their thighs for two days straight. That's too weird. Slash too absurd to do this to a stranger. So Quan was like, I'll do it. It'll be great. I I have Um, to interject that. Yeah. It's so awesome that somehow that this whole video was shot in Vernon. Vernon is almost like a like it's almost a joke in Los Angeles and that only people in it. it seems like of course this took place in Vernon. Of course, there's no other place I can imagine that that this No, it, it totally makes sense. <laughs> I I actually shot a project in Vernon in November. So I I it's it's kind of fresh in my mind. <laughs> oh yeah, I shot there a lot. The Scarfman was like you brought the the owner like a like a carton of cigarettes he'd give you half off. Oh wow. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I I learned uh, that there's I think only 250 or 350 people living in Vernon. Period. And I was like, so in order to become mayor of Vernon, you just have to convince like 150 people to vote for you. It's uh, God. You're not, like, you're not supposed to live there. Is the thing? Yeah. It's not residential. It's not zoned for residential. You know, uh, we're we're gonna go really far afield here. But for for all the people who are not in Los Angeles who are not aware of Vernon, if you like Google ver- the word Vernon and corruption, it'll take you to like articles from like curbed Los Angeles explaining the implausible history of like the most toxic and polluted area, like five miles of Los Angeles. Anyway. Yeah, we, we, we shot, I've shot a lot there. That was like our third video I had shot there with Daniel. It is very popular oh, place for shooting. It really is. It's kind of like people make jokes about like everything, you know, being able to get away with anything in Jersey. It's like you can get away with almost anything in Vernon. If you're like not dumping a body, per, you know, no one is going to bust you for what you're doing there shooting. So it's a very. Yeah, it's, it's just a bunch of warehouses and train tracks. I forget. I went to like a Derby doll show like like a month ago there. It's great. It's like you can do anything you want. It's Vernon. Anyway, we're really going far. Larkin, we should get back to talking about this music video. I just had to jump in about like how perfect it was that it took place in Vernon because it is this like surreal moment in time, this music video. And if you want to talk about sort of like a, a surreal wasteland of Los Angeles, it's it's Vernon. So. Yeah, well, and that, yeah. And that video, if you, again, if you haven't seen it, uh, we, sh- we should link it in the show notes. It's just, it is beautiful. It's surreal. It's a lot of the stuff that I've seen in your work with the Daniels on other music videos, but also in Swiss Army Man, also in Everything Everywhere All at Once. And I feel like we could talk, there. we, we could probably do an hour about your just your music videos, but one of your music videos really jumps out at me and maybe the one of all of them that I've seen the most, and that's the Childish Gambino video for This Is America. And that video is just brilliant. And again, like it has this visual ingenuity that I think is kind of a signature of yours. Can you talk about like the the genesis of that video, what it was like making it? It, it, it I mean, to me, that was like, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's a video people are going to be looking back on for 20 years, 50 years. Like it's something that people are going to be referencing a lot because it's it does what it does so powerfully. Yeah, I mean, it was it was probably one of the more surreal video projects to work on in that. Remember, Hero played me the song, and the song itself is different in terms yeah. of its rhythm and choices. And I was like, huh. And the first time you hear it, it's actually very different. And then he, and then he kind of walked me through what the rough treatment was, which was a collection of ideas of things that happen, but there's no, like, there's nothing that's framed them. Like, I remember hearing all these things that are going to happen, but there's no... Re- reason where they are doesn't exist what's happening doesn't exist it's very it was very abstract and it's this kind of this like surreal challenge of like here's are the things that are going to happen in the video we don't know where it's going to be shot we don't know when it's going to be set we don't know what people are wearing 
And so we kind of like, it was became this like fun, almost like a, I guess an art project would be the best way to put it. And that you have these kind of rules or things that you have to do or commit to, and you have to go and figure out how to do them. You know, when someone says paint a house, you know, you're like, well, what type of house? It's like, I don't know, you figure it out. Oh, wow. um, that type of thing. Then that's not that there were rules given to us, but it was very abstract and we got it. So we, we spent, you know, two weeks location scouting and going to all these weird places and different venues. And we landed on um, this old tire factory in downtown LA, probably in Vernon. Probably, <laughs> no. And uh, it was just kind of like what, what we loved about it was it was a weird space that was industrial at the same time, very beautiful. And it had like would have these massive walls, but then these really tiny doors, like almost out of Looney Tunes. Like you could go from one giant space to another and there's these giant spaces and all it was was one single door. And you're like, that's silly. That's absurd. And we kind of latched on to that. And a lot of that video was just talking it out and walking it out and, and playing around with the idea behind it. And, and, and a lot of it, you know, if you look at it, it's all different spaces. There's not a lot of like hard architecture. Yeah. Um, so we were kind of <laughs> walking around these warehouses trying to figure out how to like plot where something would begin and evolve. And we'd have different ideas and there's a ton of cell phone videos of like me, like, you know, like, like, like being Gambino or Hero being Gambino of us playing around with how the camera moves were going to work in the different spaces and us imagining what the place would be like filled with 50 extras and a car on fire. Um, we kind of thought of it ultimately more about like an art installation, like all these things that are kind of existing in a space that doesn't necessarily give or take from it. If that makes sense, it doesn't, doesn't imply anything. And yeah. that's what we really, really love. So once we found the space, a lot of it was just trying to figure out how to, to kind of slowly introduce these ideas and play with it and like showcase the performance at the same time. Have all these things happening in the background that you're not supposed to notice on the first view. Um, it was actually a pretty fun shoot. We spent so long talking about it and walking through it that when we shot it, we ended up just playing around. And we did a lot of takes. You know, we should, like the first shot, I think we probably did 30 takes. But there's only six shots in the whole film. And I think we shot it in two days and the second day we wrapped early because also the final shot is Donald sprinting through a tunnel of fluorescence being chased by people and there's a big you know one of my favorite choices he made is he was like all right all the people chasing you you're not allowed to move your arms which is very weird because they have to run they run kind of funny because of that if you can't move your arms when you run um and again you don't really notice it you just feel something's off in the I background know. I need to but, I need to watch that again I'm like really what was what was the reasoning for that do you know I think we were playing with, we wanted to make the people chasing him more spooky and less angry, if that makes sense. Hmm. Like less about people trying to like, it was just playing with the idea of tone. It's interesting and God, I, I don't want to philosophize too much, but you know, to immediately start with the image of the uh, execution style gunshot to the back of the head yeah. and then to end not just with the the hallway, but the shot right before that is the collections of sort of like 80s uh, import Japanese automobiles, which is like, it, it's an art project, but it's also sort of like this zany abstract representation of the United States. And you've got like, you know, the, the church choir and all these other elements that are kind of like playing through this thing. But uh, if you look at it just on that level, that in, in, a, in a, a couple of minutes, there's so much stuff that's handled inside of this and guns continue to make their, uh, you know, a reoccurrence. And so if there's anyone in the sound of my voice who've not seen this video, uh, we'll put a link to it to, to YouTube in the show notes, but it absolutely is is worth watching because there's so much stuff that happens and so much happens in that six shots it's like it's crazy and yeah i i don't know there was something about those 
80s Japanese, uh, you know, sedans and stuff that just totally spoke to me and really does feel like America. So. Yep. Same production designer as Everything Everywhere All at Once, Jason Cazorde. Oh, oh, wow. And he specializes in cars of that nature. Oh, wow. He's a big, big, big car guy. And specifically, Absurd, Absurd Cars from the 80s, Repo Man is his favorite film. So. That's pretty high up there on my list, too. Yeah, Ben, ben has uh, talked to me at length about Repo Man and how, how much he loves it. Okay, well, Jason does Repo Man birthday parties and does Repo Man diorama what? contest every year. <laughs> what? Like, and plays Repo Man. It's no joke, same thing for, like, decades now. Like, his Repo Man diorama collection is very impressive. Oh, my God, he's a kindred spirit of Ben. I need to... It's so weird yeah. living in L.A. because, like, uh, uh, there was a, a retrospective screening of Repo Man with Alex Cox speaking after it at the Egyptian Theater a few years ago. And, I, and it was, like, on a Thursday night, and I went there, and the place was pretty packed. And I'm like, I should know everyone in here, and I don't know anyone. <laughs> I forget. We we did a Repo Man reference. I think it's an EAO. We did a couple Repo Man products. Jason did a couple Easter eggs. Let me see if I can find it. I, I love I that you've just you. gone to like the, the Rachel Ray sort of abbreviation <laughs> reference for the movie. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, the did, chapstick. Did <laughs> the, chap, the chapstick is Repo Man Oh, style. my God. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, Jason did a, did a post about it, and he was talking about how much he loved it. You, you totally blew my mind. That's 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 just amazing. Oh God, I feel like that movie has has an outsized footprint for being kind of a, a niche cult film of the '80s because so many you see it referenced so many places. Anyway, this has nothing to do with your work. So I feel like we would be deeply remiss to not talk about Swiss Army Man, the Sundance winning film, but most importantly, just an awesome piece of uh, surreal storytelling. And, and you had already worked with the Daniels at that point, but that was their first feature, right? Yeah, that was their first feature. We had just done a slew of music videos and short films together, and they had a really crazy idea, and I wasn't sure we were going to be able to make it. <laughs> and then one day they're like, hey, Daniel Radcliffe is really interested in this. And then the next day they're like, Paul Danos also game. And it was very surreal to have that caliber of, uh, you know, actors, uh, you know, attracted to something that was so weird. Like, even when I first read it, I didn't fully comprehend what their goal was and then after you know they do their little song and dance and they walk through it and really kind of dive into like the, like what they love about it and what they want to bring out of it um, I was like oh it's totally possible and they're like and it's all in the woods <laughs> we have a set no matter what we can always we can always shoot yeah so what what was that song and dance like what what about it was was convincing to you um they had actually gone to um Sundance had a lab and they went to the Sundance lab and they shot a short film of it there just on like a very simple VHS with like, you know, a man in a dress and a man playing a corpse. Um, <laughs> and it and it just kind of showed the dynamic, how it would work very simply, like not fancy looking, nothing special. And it just it just worked really well. And the, the comedy or like the, that style of storytelling of like, is this going to work? Just two people, a man in the corpse in the woods for 90 minutes. And it and it worked wonderfully. And then. The exciting part was then we got to really play off the magic of it and figure out all the gags. And, you know, Daniel Radcliffe is a Swiss army man, so he can chop wood, create fires of his farts. He can shoot pellets out of his mouth like a machine gun. Like it was all these surreal challenges. And the biggest challenge was trying to actually make it in California. We had to shoot in three different cities, um, which is kind of surreal for like a 23 day shoot. Oh, wow. So we shot in L.A., L.A. was like shooting bears, explosions, the underwater scene, the open water scene, all the wire work stuff. And then we shot outside of San Francisco in, in like a private wood 
that um, we built the bus sequence in. We built the bus. Unfortunately, we built the bus in an active river. So it became very, like the whole bus, there's water running under oh, no. it the whole time. So it became very tre treacherous. And then the final week we went up to Humboldt County to the, to the Avenue of the Giants where all those beautiful shots of the forests are. And we had basically like, like the minimum crew. We had like a gaffer and a key grip, but they had no equipment. So they just kind of helped move camera cases around <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> we had a slider, I think, but no dolly. It was very minimal. Um, lighting or, or, or even, were you lighting that or were you finding the light? Not at all. We, we didn't have lights. We had to just basically time it around the sun. Oh um, my God. So we, but didn't, yeah. In order to do this, we spent like several months before we shot, we took a whole road trip up the coast and went camping at these different places and just were stumbling upon locations that were like, this could be great because it, no matter where we look, it's stunning. Like the Avenue of Giants, like the trees are as big as skyscrapers, it feels like. So you could literally just like, we could be like, oh, we'll do this thing here, we'll do here. And then we had to find like a fake tunnel entrance. The tunnel we use, like the cave that they're in is actually the Batman cave. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I've been there many times. I never would have called that out. That's so funny. Funny. I, I gotta yeah. ask you, is this the first time you've ever been camping with the creative team of a movie? You, you know, uh, out in the woods, like building fires together? Yeah, we just kind of got in the car and headed north and just for picking places and camping. And actually, as we were camping, we had major raccoon issues. Like, we, <laughs> raccoons are actively stealing our food while we were at a fire. They would come up behind us and take stuff. Um, very brazen. And I think that's why there are raccoons in the film. There's actually a couple of raccoon scenes that got cut. I believe there's a scene where one raccoon tries to steal Daniel Radcliffe's eye. It was very wow. funny, but you know, <laughs> and th unfortunately I believe it's on the cutting room floor. So, I mean like that's Daniel Radcliffe, like pretty hot off the heels of being Harry Potter. And I tend to not ask questions about what was it like working with X actor, but it's like such an iconic person in such an iconic role doing I can't think of anything more opposite of Harry Potter than being Swiss Army Man. <laughs> you know, like, what was the vibe on set around work, working with him? He seems like someone who's almost kind of, like, eager to tear apart the myth of, of what he's done. Well, I mean, Daniel himself is, you know, maybe the nicest actor I've worked with. He knew every person's name on set on day one. We're talking, like, PAs to boom operators. You name it. He knew everyone's name, and he was very pleasant. But he was, like, really excited to just do something unique and crazy and very dedicated. We had actually built three different versions of the corpse. We had like a stunt corpse, a really good lifelike corpse for like when he's out of focus. And Daniel refused to let us use them really. He was like, if I'm, if, if Paul's gonna be there and there's a corpse next to him, I'm just gonna lay down on the ground and be not move. Like even if he was out of focus, if he was off camera, he just, he just laid in the dirt. I mean, he got real dirty in that film, but he was in like basically every shot. So he was great, He he really, had a blast and I think really enjoyed working with it. And the Daniels are just, you know, it's always a good time with them and we get to, you know, improvise and, and kind of change things on the day. So we had a lot of fun with Dan. And Daniel is also like an amazing physical performer. His body control is, is top notch. It's like he could be a gymnast or an acrobat if he wanted oh, to. Wow. It's, it was, it was great. I'll tell you, cause I think he spends about 90% of that movie with one droopy eye. And like uh, <laughs> regurgitating water and all kinds of things, which I, I, I won't. Was that makeup or, or was that him? Like the droopy eye kind of stuff. We, that was the droopy eye was all him. It was really surreal that he could do that on command. Um, it, it was, was great. And I'm trying to do it now and I'm doing yeah. it not nearly as well. 
really I can't well. do that. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It's like there's muscles that, that have to contract to do that. And it didn't look like he had a single <laughs> muscle doing it. Like his, you have to make his eyelid go, you know, straight down. Yeah. The water gags in it, they have, they built like a hose that, as opposed to shooting out of his mouth, shot into his mouth. So it was basically like not drowning him, but it would shoot water so then he could spit it back out. There was also a scene in the tree where he Whoa. kind of cries. That's not, endlessly. That sounds really yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a dental instrument. By his eyes. Oh, yeah. No, it was. Um, I mean, he had a lot of fun with it. It was it was a lot of water. We ended up having to remember having problems cleaning up the cave because so much water was coming out and just soaking the actor's clothing. <laughs> That's insane. So before we go, we should definitely talk about your very recent Emmy nomination for Gaslit. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, it's surreal. It's the first real full TV show I've ever done. So it was getting nominated was kind of um, a shock just because it was the first time I'd really taken a stab at something like that, of that scale. I mean, it's eight episodes. So it was eight hours of an eight, an eight hour movie, which is a very different um, approach to filmmaking in a way. Yeah, it's like four movies. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot. Yeah, that's how I literally, that's what my brain did. I was like, okay, four movies. Okay, how many days do we have? How do we spread it out? But yeah, no, it was it was a, it was a beast of a show, and it's all set in the 1970s, and we follow many characters, and we had to shoot it in Los Angeles um, instead of DC, so it was basically all on stage, which I hadn't done too much of, and so it was like the fun journey of like, well, how do we actually make all of these sets feel real and tangible? And we decided not to shoot any green screen in the whole show, so we built all the sets. No green built. screen. No green screen. We only had the only time we did green screen was when we had to comp an actor into a scene because of scheduling purposes. But every oh. time you see a window in that show, the things outside of it are, are is a matte painting or, or a photographic backdrop that we lit and designed for the show. So it was really fun because you actually then had to, you know, on the day, sell it. You know, you had to like make the images convincing, which, which became the best part because then, you, you know, you can just turn off the lights and have actors silhouetted against like a beautiful sky. We had, a, we had a unit actually go to D.C. and take photographs of the backdrops we wanted to use for it. But we built like a penthouse from Watergate and we, we built the, um, the courthouse where they had all the proceedings, which was this massive undertaking because there's like, you know, the courthouse was, I forget how many people fit in it. I feel like a thousand and ours, we could only fit 300 in. But it was, it was a cool challenge. And it's, the show's also kind of surreal because it follows like the heroes and villains of the Watergate scandal. But it was designed for you not to be like, this guy's a bad person. You actually try to like, humanize the people that make these mistakes. Like, why would someone do something so stupid? Or why would they commit their whole lives to Nixon knowing he's actively doing something bad? And that was a fun challenge, just trying to get the audience to understand why people do bad things or why they believe what they're doing is just, um, which felt very, you know, apt for this time. So we, it was a fun way we... We actually gave everyone their own set of lenses. So like Martha, who's played by Julia Roberts, had Canon K35s because they were softer and more intimate. And, and then other characters we show on Speed Pancros, the middle ground characters that were kind of bad, but kind of good. It was a fun challenge. We were trying to find ways to kind of strip it down and, and make it unique. And so that you could kind of tell or get a, get a gist of like what the characters or intentions were through the visuals. Yeah, yeah, and it almost seems like like I, most of the images that we're used to seeing from that time are probably 16 millimeter, you know, uh, news yeah. footage and stuff like that. So and that's where we started. And Matt Ross, our director, was like, "I don't want that." He's like, "I don't. We're not in the 70s. Everyone's going to know we're not in the 70s. It needs to be like something kind of timeless." So we didn't want gritty 16, but we also didn't want that super shallow 
modern look that you see. So we were like, you know, the Alexa Mini, which is a brilliant camera. It was like, let's just take this. It's, it's great. And it, you know, we were able to basically shoot wide open, but you could still see the sets. Whereas I feel like now a lot of times we shoot wide open on large format. It's just, you know, it's bokeh. Like you don't even know what's behind the actor half the time. It's a lot of mush for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, cool. Um, so, uh, Larkin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Congratulations. Oh, uh, actually, before I even go, being nominated for an Emmy, how has it changed your life? What was that like? We didn't really talk too much about, uh, you know, being uh, attached to the big Sundance winning film. Um, I mean, as of now, it hasn't changed my life besides a bunch of people reaching out and saying hi. I mean, I, I can't, I can't honestly tell what, what's changed yet. I mean, I think if you win an Emmy, I think that may change something. Um, it's just, it's just exciting that that the show got recognized for for all the work that all the different crafts people did. You know, it's, it's a fun way to acknowledge that, you know, not just the photographer, like the camera department, but like, you know, grip, lighting, costumes, hair, makeup. It's just a nice way to see that all of that work kind of people thought we did a good job. Um, but no, no one's, you know, banging on my door right now. I think the TV, especially <laughs> it's just the, the wild west right now. And everyone's like, are you available? Great. Let's go. <laughs> As opposed also, to, I feel like everything everywhere all at once is, you know, probably one of the most buzzworthy films of this year. So, uh, you know, being the fact that you were nominated for an Emmy, I feel like is a, an enormous feather in your cap. But like when I, when I tell people that we're interviewing you, like I have yet to talk to someone who doesn't love this movie. I mean, I, I I'm going to be really shocked if, if, if there isn't an Oscar nomination in it, I feel like it's definitely gonna get some Oscar love and I hope some of it goes to you. Seriously. I think, I think your work and is it extraordinary. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, that, that'd be surreal, but there's there's many beautiful films yet to come out this year. But yeah, it would be a trip if, if that film got there. Mainly because of butt plug fight. <laughs> <laughs> I was say, if you think people are calling you, telling you uh, how good looking you are right now, uh, wait, till you, wait, till you, wait till you start winning these awards, then then they're really going to call. Yeah, yeah, people who you met 19 years ago are going to be like, hey, Larkin, very handsome, very handsome. Look at you. So... Well, and I think I think we we can give him a, we can give him a bump. I remember I remember when we had Eric Messerschmidt on the show, and I said I think you're going to get nominated for an Oscar, and he looked at me like I was uh, crazy. And so I, <laughs> I I I will be shocked honestly if uh, everything everywhere all at once isn't isn't remembered come Oscar time because I feel like it's just uh, it's one of those movies you know like Silence of the Lambs that comes out early in the year, but people are still talking about it months later, and just like. The love has just been growing and growing for it. And and uh, every day, uh, not every day, but frequently people who I was talking about are like, I finally caught it on Amazon or whatever. It's so amazing. And I'm like, right? You should have gone to see it in the theater. Anyway, uh, where can people find you online, be it your website, out in Instagram, Vernon, you know, where, Twitter? Um, yeah, just go to Vernon. <laughs> go to the Dairy Queen in Vernon. I have a website that is very out of date. I don't even know if the EAO trailer's on there, but... Um, I'm yeah. I have a website, LarkinCiple.com, and I have an Instagram account that I try to use, but I'm not great at it because I'm usually on set. But yeah, it's out there. And then I have an agency with more of my current work at WPA. If you go there, you can find links to my commercials and other other weird projects that I do on the side. Well, uh, we'll be bucking for you in September for the Emmys, and uh, look forward to whatever you do next and anything you ever want to come talk about on here. Let us know. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. It's been great talking about everything, everywhere. <laughs> so uh that was larkin Seipel. Uh, we got our fingers crossed for you larkin at the emmys on september 12th 
And if you are listening to this and you live under a rock and you haven't seen everything everywhere all at once, I dare say it's one of the more exciting movies of the year. If, if not, you know, my personal front runner for best picture, but you know, the rewatchability of that movie too is pretty insane. And, uh, the amount of stuff that you pick up watching it, uh, repeatedly is incredible. And I got to say that I think it even enhances the experience of having seen it once by watching it twice because then you start to pick up on these things it's like oh man look at that detail look at that detail look at that detail i know so, it's, it's so yeah. well done i i have a, a weird and this isn't a question for larkin Seiple, it's more for the daniels who wrote and directed it but i wonder if we would have all this multiverse stuff if rick and morty didn't exist like i feel like rick and morty blasted open the idea of of multiverse storytelling probably like five years ago and i feel like the kind of multiverse storytelling that we get feels like akin to what they do on Rick and Morty. I don't know if you've seen Rick and Morty. I've seen uh, a little bit of it, but you know, also you had into the spider verse, which was based on comics. That is way before the into the spider verse movie came out. And the multiverse is sort of like kind of been a thing that's been around for quite a while. It's just, I think that it's really in the forefront and I'm not saying it's derivative at all. It's not derivative of Rick and Morty. I just feel like Rick and Morty kind of showed a way to do it. I, okay, I, I, I'm just saying that I don't know if Rick and Morty deserve all the credit, but I have to say for writers out there, they probably love it because it's just like, you know, there's no logic anymore. It's like whatever you want it to be. It's just a multiverse thing. It's just here's another thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember there was a kid show that did the multiverse. I don't know how many years back that, that my daughter used to like to watch. So I don't know. It, I, I think it's been around for a while, but I got to say, I think we might have reached peak multiverse right now. And I think it's going to be a decline. I don't think we're going to keep getting the multiverse as plot point for broad entertainment, except for Rick and Morty and the other stuff that's just that might continue forever. Of course. So there's going to be more Spider-Mans. Spider's Man. <laughs> and now, short ends. Hey, uh, Ben, what is your short end today? Uh, my short end will surprise nobody. It is the new Netflix series, The Sandman. Hmm. Oh, my God. I don't even Sandman. know. I don't even know where to start. It is Neil Neil Gaiman has been writing and creating amazing stuff since probably the 1970s or the 1980s. And uh, Sandman, I remember the comic book Sandman when it first came out. As a comic book reader, teenage kid in the 80s, our, our mutual friend Kurt tried to get me into uh, superhero stuff. I never gave a crap about it. I was always into stuff like probably the closest I got was John Constantine uh, Hellblazer. Uh, which has been adapted now into a movie and a TV series, both kind of missing the mark in their own separate ways. But the movie, I'd say, was better than the TV series. And uh, Sandman was kind of was one of the things that came out around that time and was one of the things that sort of cemented Neil Gaiman, in my mind anyway, as just an amazing writer. And it is the gothiest, so gothy, so Mm. unbelievably gothy, like... (laughs) It crawled out of Peter Murphy's head and, you know, was 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 it's the gothiest thing ever. Um, and it's a great comic book. And, you know, for the longest time, there's been sort of like this curiosity of would it ever get made into a movie or a TV series? And I think gothier than Robert Smith at midnight on Halloween. Gothier than that. Gothier than <laughs> than a Hammer movie about Robert Smith at Halloween uh, uh, at, 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 at midnight. midnight. Yeah. Uh, hanging out with Dracula. Um, wow! All right, it's the gothiest, gothiest fucking thing that ever was. Okay, and, 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 it's, and it's on, and it's on Netflix. And, it's on, and, and and it's a besides the fact that it's so gothy, you're recommending this. You're you're like wholeheartedly it's, recommending. It's great 
storytelling top to bottom and neil gaiman i think with good omens sort of took over his own like he was he was powerful enough uh in the industry to sort of run that show and i don't know if he's running this show i don't think he is but he's you can feel his hand very much in it and it's pretty it's been a long time since i've read it but it's a pretty faithful adaptation as i remember it the guy who plays the titular sandman tom sturridge dream is actually the character i mean seriously could not be gother paler or have spikier (laughs) hair in every scene um but it really has an amazing cast including uh somebody who's great in everything ever and that's Patton oswald plays uh a a crow who's sort of one of his uh companions and is wonderful i just i've never seen Patton oswald in something i didn't like him in at least it's shot by will baldy sam Heisman and uh, George Steele, not to be confused with George the Animal Steele, but if I ever worked on a set with George Steele, I wouldn't stop making George the Animal Steele comments about him. Um, uh, only only people who watched wrestling in the 80s will will get that one. Or Tim Burton's Ed Wood, which brings us back to Gotham. Oh, that's right. You're right. Um, you, well done, sir. Yes, you, yes. You, you connected those dots so nicely. Yes, yes. Uh, um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's just, it's, it's a gorgeous looking show. I mean, the, the design of it, the cast is amazing. It's I mean, there's people like John Cameron Mitchell in it, uh, David Thewlis. There, there's just mm. so many uh, amazing people who just kind of pop up here and there in, in this cast. Episode six is a heartbreaking episode. I haven't finished the series. I'm, I think, two episodes away from being done just because I have a four-year-old and can only stay up so late. If I didn't have a kid, I would have binged this all in one night. It's the best thing Netflix, in my opinion, has done in the last... I don't know how many years. It's the best thing I've seen on Netflix that was an original Netflix thing. And actually, even to get back to our close focus, it's a Warner Brothers property, and I don't understand why HBO Max didn't make this. How did Netflix get to do this when Warner Brothers owns Sandman? So weird. But definitely, (laughs) uh, if you don't like gothy, weird, brooding supernatural, tons of supernatural stuff in this, if that's not your jam, avoid it. But I think it looks great. Uh, Bravo to all the creators of it, everyone behind it. And, uh, you know, I hope the cinematography is uh, remembered when it's Emmy time for for this show, because it's just really, really well done. Wow. I'll have to look into it then. Yeah, check it out. I mean, you and I don't always agree on stuff, so you might not like it, but I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. It sounds like it might be, you know, goth turned up to 11, and that might be like four notches too much for me. But we'll see. I'll, I'll give it a try. All right. (laughs) So, Ilya, what is your short end this week? You know me. uh, Occasionally, I'm more of a connoisseur, trying to be more selective, but I I will watch some anime, anime series, anime movies. And, you know, I I was listening to Jordan Peele on a a podcast this week, and he was talking about, like, you know, one of his greatest sources of inspiration is anime because you know there aren't a lot of rules they can they can kind of uh, do whatever it's animation and uh you don't necessarily have the budgets uh restrictions with animation you can draw it you can you can make it happen and i think it's really interesting because one of the most successful long-running anime series of movies and television animated series is Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. Uh, of course, it got turned into a, a live action movie a few years ago. And I think quite a few people like 
to just you know pretend that that doesn't exist. But friend of ours, friend of the show, uh, someone who you know quite well, Bill Totolo, said, oh, yeah. "Hey, I watched the new Ghost in the Shell, which is it says SAC 2045. It's on uh, it's on Netflix right now, and it popped up in my feed. And you know, Bill Totolo gave me a uh, a recommendation for it, so I I decided to to give it a shot. And here's the interesting thing about it: it doesn't look like anything that's come before it. And I don't know if I necessarily like the way it looks. It's uh, computer animated. It's all 3D animation. The lip sync is poor. I I wished multiple times that I was watching sort of like the hand-drawn early stuff. I watched Ghost in the Shell, the original, in 1995 at uh, the Red Vic in San Francisco on a big couch with a huge bowl of popcorn, which is this indie local movie theater where you could go do that, where they had big couches in the front row and gave you these huge wooden bowls of popcorn. And it was and it was kind of an awesome experience and like the perfect way for me to have experienced that movie, which at the time was groundbreaking and interesting and everything else. And there's so many derivatives of this. I haven't watched everything between. I didn't watch all the other things. So I was like, how am I going to actually get into this? But, you know, Bill gave me said, no, just give it a try. See, see what you think. And I have to say, after I kind of got over my disdain for the look of the the overall sort of animation the story does suck you in and it really is this sort of like if you think you're going to watch it I should not say anything about it and there are some problems with it it's flawed it's not a perfect show but I have to say that by the time you get to the end of the second season it's weird how they did it but it's like there's the, the episodes are all really short and they put them together it's designed to be bingeable and it definitely feels like something you've seen before but not in exactly the same way. And when you get to the end of it, it's kind of a weird, trippy thing. And we've got a little bit of like surrealism and stuff going on. And I have to say that the story is at some points convoluted, but it's not like something else I've seen before. So if you want something that you haven't seen before that kind of gets into this weird, trippy headspace, Ghost in the Shell, computer animated, standalone complex 2045. It's now the latest thing. You don't really need to have had a, a big backstory. You don't need to have watched all this other stuff. You can you can pop in at any time. It's on Netflix. It's uh, yeah. It's look at us both t- recommending something on Netflix. And uh, side note, you didn't recommend anything like super technical or lens or a lens or something. I didn't recommend a podcast. <laughs> look at us. Look at us diversifying. Yeah. Well, well, Ben, uh, I think that just about does it. We both, you know, gave people some stuff to watch if they want to watch it. You're not going to watch Ghost in the Shell for the cinematography. You know what? I, I, I'm being a little bit harsh. There is some beautiful stuff in there, but at the end of the day, it, it's computer animated. It feels like a computer animated thing, and you have to just, you know, turn off your brain when it comes to lip sync because no one's mouth moves. It, it's in some ways, it's kind of like watching a, a dubbed, you know, Asian film from, you know, 50 years ago. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of that going on, and I know, uh, I happen to personally know two people who make a living directing dub sessions for Netflix hmm. uh, stuff. And it's, I think, something we're only going to see more and more of. And, like, the people I know who do it, I actually know both of them from theater. And they are, you know, like, serious storytellers, serious directors. They really work their asses off to, to do the job right. And they take a lot of pride in casting right the right people. And, yeah, yeah, you're never going to match the lip sync. I did see uh, a technology that a, some an AI deep fake technology it wasn't an AI deep fake technology they shot a movie and they got all of the facial capture data or whatever for an actor and they knew that they were going to do this and I believe it was a German movie and then like the English language dub is in perfect sync mm. because they basically were able to create a riggable model that would animate his face 
with the same emotions and stuff. And I'm like, eh, I, I wonder if that's the future of it. it. Like, that would be interesting. A thousand percent is. And I have seen some AI demonstrations where it's like, you know, very shortly, if filmmakers choose and people who are making television, and everything else, if they choose to have perfect lip sync for every language that they're going to release it and cut and and I'm going to say streaming services like Netflix and Apple TV, which are doing these like these dubs, you know, a dozen different dub versions of whatever it is. Every single actor is going to be able to look like they were saying those words. And uh, it's going to become automatic. It is going to be an automatic thing where it's like, do you want this to happen? Click click a button and the whole thing will get processed and brrr, everyone's going to have perfect lip sync. I, I talked to someone who was uh, forming a startup company uh, a couple of years ago, actually, about about doing this. And I have to imagine that by now they're they're probably in business. So, hmm. Yeah, it, it, technology. The, the machine, what do you the, do? the machine learning is is, is out there, and uh, there are some some uses for our industry, and that that may be one of them. We might be able to, uh, you know, speak Swahili soon, and it'll look like that's what we were natively speaking. Well, and AI is just changing the way everything is done, including how I spend all my free time, which is uh, coming up with goofy shit on on Midjourney. Yes, I, I I know you've got a. You should plug your your Facebook group for people to uh, to join. Oh, it's it's called Protecting Our Friends uh, from AI Art, and I founded it because my friend Jesse Merlin uh, texted me and he's like, "Hey, love you, Ben, but you got to stop posting. You know, you got to stop po- posting images of you know wasp larvae coming out of eyeballs on Facebook, or all your you're going to alienate everyone." I'm like, you know, you're right. So I just created a group, and uh, we're a few hundred strong now. There's wow. a few hundred people who are just regularly posting weird ass AI art on there. Uh, Mid Journey and Dolly. E. Mm-hmm. Uh, some. Some people got on Dolly too. I, I'm like still on the waiting list for Dolly too, and I haven't gotten on there. On there. Yeah, that that, but, that was my short end. I don't know how many months ago, but uh, but yeah, I, I I haven't gotten access either. So who knows? Who knows when it'll finally happen? I know I know several people who have gotten access, and there isn't like any rhyme or reason to why they are that I know. They're of. just cooler it, than me and you. That's fair, but man, oh man, do I use Mid Journey all day long? Like whenever I find myself sitting around doing nothing, I'm like. Hmm, I wonder what Steve Buscemi would look like as a pizza. Here we go, you know. <laughs> Is that actually one of them? Uh, actually, I, I, I stole that one from my friend Mike Manello. He, that, that was his. Hmm. Okay. Um, Did but, it do uh, a reasonable Steve Buscemi? It was an amazing and grotesque image of Steve Buscemi <laughs> as a pizza. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, nightmare I, did, I, did a, I did a series that was like rainbows, like, you know, a uh, rainbow that its parents hate or uh, avenging rainbow or, you know, whatever. Like I did a bunch of them and it was like, I was like, wow, it really is like kind of a cool way. It's sort of like taking the 10,000 hours out of learning how to paint. Um, and but also giving you no control about uh, you know of 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 the outcome. Like either you really have you're you're at the mercy of whatever the AI gives you. And a lot of time, like I was trying to use it to create concept art for a movie I'm trying to make, and I, you, I just you can't do got, it. Yeah, I just got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. Like it just kept uh, the the more precise and specific you want to get with it, the harder it is. But I did one that was like uh, the dark rites uh, at the Church of Jerry Lewis and Latter Day Clowns, <laughs> and it's. <laughs> The most disturbing thing I've ever seen. It was wonderful. So, Ilya, where can people find you? Oh, man. Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. Hotrodcameras.com. You know, find your next uh, piece of gear. Cameras, lenses, lighting. We, we got all that stuff. And more. So, so Ben, where can people find you? Find me at benrock.com at the aforementioned Protecting Our Friends from AI Art. And also, uh, the Facebook group Needs a Werewolf. Still going strong. All right, Ben, let's thank some people. Who do we have to thank this week? 
Uh, first and foremost, let's thank Alana Cody for hooking up this kick-ass interview with Larkin Seipel, someone who is, uh, again, I'm calling it, this This wins the Oscar. Oh, well, it could. It could very well. He's at least going to get nominated for an Oscar for this. And uh, obviously, I don't know what's coming out in the fall. Like, I don't know what amazing Oscar movies are coming out in the fall. But uh, I, I, I think that any movie this year, the movie to beat is everything, everywhere, all at once. And the cinematography is one of the key things that makes that movie so wonderful. Agreed. I, I'd say there's about nine different things that make that movie so wonderful, including, sure. including the script, including the directing, the, including the, the cast. Writing, the acting. Oh, my God. Yeah. Top to bottom. Uh, let's thank uh, Kays Alatrakshi, our uh, intrepid composer who composed every scrap of music that you heard on here and who uh, we may actually be having on the show very soon. Yeah, I know. It's it's incredible. I didn't think this day would ever come. I think that we're going to get yeah. a little bit of mail from people who are like, it's, you know, it, if it does happen, they're, they're going to be in disbelief because we were pretty sure for like the first five years he didn't listen to the show. <laughs> That's true. That was part of our tag. And uh, last but never least, we need to thank Ben Katz, the amazing Ben Katz, our editor, who week after week steers us away from sounding like the dopes that we are. Okay. So, Ben, I think that just about does it. Let's, uh, let's say goodbye. <laughs> See you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.